Well, as always, it is a gift and a privilege to be able to stand up here and open the Bible with you. Um, I don't take that for granted at all. And this morning, uh, I am thankful that we, uh, we finished the Gospel of Mark last week. And we've decided that over the next six weeks, we're going to start a new um, kind of topical series, even though I'm going to preach it a little bit expositionally, and I'll, I'll explain what that means. But we're going to walk through a series called The Church. The Church. And what I pray to accomplish over the next six weeks is an overview of some of the main characteristics of what makes up the church. What makes up, when you come into a building like this, right, when you come in Sunday morning, what do you actually expect to happen? What do you expect to find at the foundation of a morning like today? And, and I hold the church very close to my heart, not just because I'm a, I'm a preacher of the Bible, I'm a preacher of the gospel, um, which we do that inside of a church, but because is I believe that God has given the church to be a very particular and special conduit of his grace. One that is God's primary means of revealing himself is through what the church does, through what the church does. Now, I know it's very popular. It's very popular to kind of rag on the church a little bit, right? And, and there's, there's sometimes really good reason to rag on the church. It's imperfect. It's not Jesus, right? If you come in here expecting the church to be perfect, you are going to be very disappointed. But the church is special, and we need more of them. We need more of them. Uh, you know, because some people, and I hear this all the time in the valley, in this valley, is like, we have enough churches, Right? Right? And if you, if you drive down, you know, Centerville, you'll see like all those churches right in a row. And you're like, see, we have so many churches. We don't need any more churches. There's a church on every single block. Even if that were so, we still need more churches. We still need more churches. And, and here's, let me give you a quick example of that. If only about 10% of this valley's population... If the Carson Valley's population were to decide one Sunday morning, only 10% of us would all go to church, we would not have enough room in every single church in this valley to hold them. Okay? Which speaks to a couple of different things. And what I want to point out is that we need more churches. There's, we, there's a lot of people that don't know Christ. right? Don't know His mercy. Don't know His grace. And so we need more churches that will be able to open up this book and be able to preach the good news of who God is. And so that speaks to, right, the great mission field that we have here, but also the call of, okay, if that call is great and the mission is great, then what we do is important. It will make an impact. And I pray that God will use this church for the two primary ways in which he's given the church for a lost world. And that is for believers to be able to use the church for a conduit of growing in grace, growing and maturing in their faith in Christ, right? That's one of the primary means of the church is to be a place where people can grow in their faith. But another aspect of the church is also to be a place where people can discover their faith in Christ. Because where else? Where else are they going to hear about the good news of Christ if the church is not doing that itself? And so you guys have heard me say this probably repeatedly, um, but I'm going to keep saying it until you're tired of hearing it, to be quite honest. 
is that I pray that this church will be a spot where you follow Jesus unashamedly, unapologetically, relentlessly, but also help others do the same. You follow Jesus here and you also help people follow Jesus here. That's our goal. So over the next six weeks, what we're going to be doing is looking at some of the main characteristics that make up Carson Valley Bible Church. You guys can see um, that little poster to my left is some of those things that we're going to walk through over the next six weeks. Because it's a... And what I'm getting at this morning, though, and because I'm excited to talk about the first one, and that's the Bible, because it's the foundation to all that we do. All the rest of the characteristics that I'm going to talk about in the coming weeks are grounded upon the foundation of the Bible. Because the reality is, is you can do a couple of different things when it comes to church. You can make it up. You can just come in here and say, you know, we're just going to do whatever we feel like doing, or... We're going to do what we feel like God has called us to do and is actually explicitly revealed to us to do in his word. And so what we're going to do today is I'm going to talk about the Bible. That this church, Carson Valley Bible Church, is driven by the Bible. It's driven by the Bible. And that is really good news for us. So it's driven on Sunday. We're Bible people on Sunday. But even throughout the week, all of our groups, our prayers... They're all grounded and founded upon the Word of God. And there's no other place, there's no other place that I should direct you to as a foundation other than that. So with that first core characteristic is that we are ruled by the Bible. We're ruled by the Bible church. The Holy Bible has all the authority in what we do here. All 66 books that make up your Bible, right? The 66 books of the Old and New Testament make up the foundation of this church. And why is that? Why is that? Well, because the Bible is inerrant. It doesn't have errors. It's sufficient for all that we need to know about God and our response to Him. It's also complete. And it's also the Word of God, most importantly. It's the Word of God. It's the word of God. And I'll explain all what that means, but I feel like one of the best things that I can do at this point in a sermon is stop and pray before we actually open up and read the Bible is pray that God would be merciful and just allowing us to be able to know and understand him. So let's do that. Will you guys just pray for me as I pray for you and then we'll continue. Well, Father, I, I just want to uh, stop again and recognize that I'm not here under my own authority. I'm not here because I'm smarter than anybody else. I'm not here because I'm better than anybody else. But I'm here just as a servant of you and wanting to open up your word, Lord, and be able to proclaim its goodness because it reveals who you are. It reveals your love for us. It reveals the the joy that we can have in you. And it reveals all of what we need to know about our salvation. So God, help every single person in this building this morning, whether they're coming here knowing you, following you, maybe they've been a a student of your word for a long time. Maybe you remind them that your word is sufficient for everything. Or maybe, Lord, if if you've drawn people into this, this room this morning who don't know you, maybe have never opened up the Bible, never read it, that you would encourage them that you have given them your word 
so they can know you and believe in you and turn to you and trust you. God, we also pray for our kids as they just continue just to learn um, about your word as well and your promises that you've even made in the Old Testament that are still impacting them as little six-year-olds that they can walk out of there knowing the promises of you, Lord. So we ask that we need help in all that area, Lord, and we ask this in your mighty, mighty name. Amen. Amen. All right, so if you have a Bible or if you want to use one of the Black Pew Bibles around the room, I would encourage you to go ahead and open it up to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm actually going to start in verse 14 and read through verse 16, just to give us a little bit more context. Page 996, if you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles, and it should be up on the screen behind me or to the left and right of me as well. But let me go ahead and read this for us this morning. So the Word of God says this. It says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God. That's the important line today, church. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Church, that is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, we're so thankful. All right, since we're kind of parachuting into a middle of a book, let me give us a little bit of context to what we just read. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a young man named Timothy. It's a second letter to him, why the, the title of the book is called Second Timothy. Second Timothy. And what Paul is doing is he's encouraging this young pastor named Timothy to hold fast to what is true. Because Paul knows that as Timothy begins to shepherd and lead as a pastor elder in the local church, that he is going to have all kinds of opinions coming at him, all kinds of trials coming at him, all kinds of uh, areas in which his life, that he is going to be tempted to be able to move away from the actual power of God. So what Paul is doing to Timothy here is he's reminding them, or reminding him rather, and us by extension, that there's no greater place to draw people and to found people upon than the Word of God, than the Scriptures, the Bible, the very words of God, he says. And he tells us all the things, that he can make you wise for our salvation. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's complete for every good work that a Christian will encounter. He's saying the totality, Timothy, of your ministry is going to be grounded in the Word of God. At least the fruit in which you desire for your ministry to produce. But as I mentioned, I want you to look at verse 16. At verse 16. This is really important. This is really important, church. And it says, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. Meaning that the Bible, in which we hold, the biblical writers, and the early church um, historians, early church fathers, said this, these 66 books in which we hold in our hands this morning are the very words of God. That they are breathed out by God. That they are not just human words. But they are divine in their authority and also their inspiration. 
that they actually represent the words of God. So what we believe here as a church, what we believe that the scriptures teach, is that the word of God is driven and inspired by God himself. That the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, oversaw and was a part of every single letter, of every single word that was penned in your Bibles. Now let me show you this from the Apostle Peter. You don't have to turn there, but this is what Peter says in one of his letters, 2 Peter 1.21. In commenting about Scripture, he says this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a process of called dual authorship. So even though we believe that human beings, right, human authors, pen the words in their specific context with their specific personalities, using the language that they knew, there was a dual authorship, a part of that. That even though they were writing that, you know, with all of the, the physical means in which they had, the Holy Spirit was actually still overseeing every single thing that they wrote. Dual authorship. So everything in which God wanted to reveal about himself or us was accomplished by the Holy Spirit. You know, the Old Testament, uh, the writers knew this. They knew this. They knew this was the case, even as they were writing it. Over 3,000 times in the Old Testament church, you'll read, if you walk through the Old Testament, you'll read like prophets and other men saying, thus saith the Lord, or God has said, when they're writing the Bible. When they're writing their either history or poems, all the different genres that make up the Old Testament, they even knew that what they were writing was not just mere human words, but they were reflecting the very words of God. They were not just human sentences. So, here's what that means. It means that the the primary reason why we believe that the Bible is the Word of God is because the Bible says it is the Word of God. Now, I know what you're thinking. That is circular reasoning, right? Circular reasoning, right? Especially if maybe if you have a philosophy degree, you say, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't use circular reasoning. You can't say the Bible is the word of God because the Bible says it's the word of God. Now, I get that. I get that. But the truth is, I could, t- I could go to other areas. I could tell you about all the prophecies that have been fulfilled throughout history that the Bible has. Thousands of them, all fulfilled. I could tell you about all the the archaeological evidence for the Bible to be true and inerrant. I could tell you about all the scientific evidence that it has throughout the Bible to point you to its authenticity. I could do all of that. But here's why we shouldn't start there. Because if I appeal to any other counsel or court of opinion as the highest authority, then that has the highest authority. That's why I have to start with the Bible says that it is the word of God. Because if I tell you, hey, history has proven that the Bible is the word of God, or science has proven that the Bible is the word of God, what has the highest authority then? Those things. That has the highest court of opinion, that history or science has the highest authority in this world. But I can't do that. I can't do that. So even though we do believe that all of those things do attest to the authenticity and the divineness of the Bible, 
The reason why we as a church ultimately believe that the Bible is the Word of God is because the Bible says it is the Word of God. But what difference does that make then? What difference does that make then if we as a church say the Bible is not just a human book? What difference does it make then if we say if the Bible is the Word of God, what difference does that make? It makes a big difference because now if the Bible is the Word of God, then it has authority. It has authority because God has said something. The most supreme being has written down something and it has now the final say in all things in which it is written about. And we don't like that, right? We don't like that, that a book could have the final authority in our lives or in our church. And the reason why we don't like that is often because we're products of the Enlightenment, we have grown up in a time in human history where we have been taught repeatedly for hundreds of years that your opinion or your thoughts or your feelings about something should have the highest authority in your life, right? We don't go around saying that, but we like that. We like that. You know, we don't go around saying that no one can tell me what to do. No one can tell me who I am. Maybe they do. Or no one can tell me how I ought to feel. At least most of us don't around go around saying that, but we certainly believe it at times. Even more practically, how this works out is we, we simply do what we want with who we want when we want to do it. Showcasing what is our authority often. Now let me ask you something. Because one is, if, if, if you feel like I just described you, one, know that you're in good company, right? We all do this. We all have a tendency to believe that our thoughts, our feelings, our opinions about something have the highest authority in our lives. But let me ask you this. How is that working out for you? How is that working out for you? When you have come to the time in your, in your life, and maybe that was this morning, maybe that was yesterday, maybe that's been your entire life, where you've simply done what you want, when you want, with who you want, how has that worked out for you? Well, I imagine if you're anything like me, it's been a train wreck. It's been a train wreck. And you know why? Because I'm a crappy God. I don't know if I can say crappy. Did it again. I'm a crappy God. And here's what I mean by that. I don't know everything. I'm not all-knowing. I'm not all-powerful. I don't know how my actions are going to affect other things. I'm not omnipresent, meaning that I am not where I ought to be all the time. But you know who is? God. God is all of those things. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-present. And so when we try to live our lives as if I have the highest authority, it's a train wreck. It's a train wreck. But I pray for maybe most of us in this room, maybe some of us this morning, we would come to the point in our lives where we say, maybe I don't have it all together. Maybe I need to turn to the one that actually does know all things and say, can I trust him? Can I trust him, the one who knows all things and knows, has revealed himself in his word but also has revealed how we are to respond to him because of his word. You see, the Bible is unlike any other book throughout all of human history because it has the power to do that. 
It has the authority to do that. And nothing else does. And here's just practically, just as, as, a, as your pastor, one of the benefits of that is the Bible can never steer you wrong. Okay? It can never steer, it cannot get your situation wrong. When it says, hey, this is the best way for you to respond to me or to flourish under my rule and my reign. There's nothing in here that says unless this has happened to you. Or unless, you know, your particular situation has arised. The Bible cannot steer you wrong, church. Even though we we have a tendency to tell God, but you don't know my situation. You don't know what I've been through. Trust me. He does. And he has still written his word down for you to know him and respond to him. God cannot lie. He cannot make a mistake. And he cannot get anything wrong. That's why we believe that the Bible is without error. It's without error. It cannot make a mistake. It cannot make a mistake. And it's completely sufficient for all things regarding the character and the nature of God. One of the, if you guys have seen when you guys walk through the church, I have a poster um, on the right-hand side when you're walking in, and it's the five solas of the Reformation. The five solas of the Reformation. There's, these, there's Latin phrases of, of basically five things in which the Reformers, um, you know, so around the 16th century, 15th century, these group of men who were kind of wanting to ground themselves in the Word of God for, for what they believe and who they are against some of the... Uh, issues that were going on inside the Roman Catholic Church at that moment, they came up with these five solas, right? And that first sola, this first Latin phrase that they penned down was a phrase called sola scriptura, sola scriptura, which means the word of God alone. The word of God alone has the authority to govern everything about the church, everything about the church, that everything in which we want to do has to fall under what is the word of God say and they did that because they knew and they had seen it that we as humans like to try to sneak away from the authority of God right we try to when we we have a tendency to just drift like you're not paying attention to drift away from that and but they were calling the church remember sola scriptura remember that the word of God alone has the authority that everything in which we do should fall under the banner of the bible not the pope not your feelings, not what is popular at the moment should govern ultimately the church, but the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, inspired word of God should. And that is good news because it cannot make a mistake. Now, <clears throat> I got a Spurgeon quote for you. It's been a couple of weeks, so I feel, I feel to do this. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the great 19th century Baptist preacher in London named Charles Spurgeon. And this is what he says about the Bible. He says, There are many nowadays who refuse to believe in the verbal inspiration of the Scriptures. But I fail to see how the sense of Scripture can be inspired if the words in which that sense is expressed are not also inspired. He says, I believe that the very words in the original Hebrew and Greek were revealed from heaven. And notwithstanding every objection that can, come, that can be brought from any quarter, I have never been able to get away from the firm belief that if I give up my master's words, I give up his thoughts also. Let me read that last line again. If I give up my master's words, I give up his thoughts also. 
Isn't that great? Also convicting. Because at the core of what the Bible is, is the book about God. It's not a book about us, primarily. It's not about us. It's for us, but it's not about us. It's about God. It's about who he is. It's about what he has done. It's about what his thoughts are for a world in which he has created. It's a book that has revealed himself to us so we can know him, so we can understand him. And then we can rightfully respond to him because of the knowledge that we have in him. Do you know that's why after somebody, whether it's myself or somebody else up here, after they read the Bible, they say, this is the word of, the glo- word of God. And what do we say in response? Thanks be to God. Because, and that's not just a ritualistic, legalistic, or religious thing that we do. We often want to remind ourselves that we are thankful for God who has revealed himself. That we're not in the dark on this. Then we don't have to wonder, what is God like? Does he even care about us? Is he even a he? Does he have personhood? No, but we have the Bible. God has revealed himself in his word so that we could know him and then respond to him. Respond to him. We're not lost in the dark of who God is. Now, there's a, a, a branch of, of, not necessarily theology, but there's an aspect of what's called um, common or general revelation. Which means that if you go to Lake Tahoe or you go um, you know, up into the mountains or you go to the ocean or you see some of the earth's uh, most fantastic, beautiful uh, pieces of land that are in this world, that you can know certain things about God by looking at those things. Like you can look at the Grand Canyon or look up into the, scar, the stars and see that there must be a God. There must be some. There's, it is far too beautiful for this just to have randomly happened by accident. I'm, a, I'm, I'm always, uh, my breath is taken away every time I drive up to Lake Tahoe, right? You go over Kingsbury grade, and you start dropping in, and you see this beautiful lake at the top of a mountain. It's wonderful. And it should point us that God has been here. God has been here. He has done something here. He has revealed himself here. So you can know that God exists. Paul even talks about this in one of his letters to the Roman church. It's just by and you can know that God exists. But here's what you cannot know simply by looking at Lake Tahoe. And that is that God who created Lake Tahoe came and lived and died in your place. You cannot know that by just looking at the water. But you can know that because of special revelation the word of god the bible we know who god is because of that and so here is what we're what i'm trying to communicate as a church for us as a church is that one of the foundations that we have as a church is that if we believe that the bible is authoritative for every aspect of the christian life then it should be also for the church also for the church that what we do here on Sunday, what we do throughout the week, what we do as a people of God is governed by what does the Bible say. Such as we need to preach the Bible. We need to sing the Bible. We need to read the Bible. We need to observe the ordinances like the Lord's Supper and baptism. We need to have clear biblical leadership. All of that is driven by the Word of God explicitly driven by the word of God. 
also all the, and by the way, all those characteristics that I just mentioned, uh, we're going to be kind of just walking through in the coming weeks of where do we actually see that? Where does the Bible actually talk about leadership? Where does it actually talk about um, what the church does on its day-to-day life? But we have to start with the authority of the Bible. Does the Bible say anything? Can it be trusted? Does it have that authority? Because what would happen if we believed that the Bible didn't have authority? If we believed that it was not sufficient for everything that the Christian needed to know? Well, I imagine, and I pray this has not been the case for us, that then you start just drifting into human reasoning or human creativity, saying, what can we do that will make people like coming here? And I think what you do is you run into one of the first big errors that every church can run into, is that instead of being driven by the Bible, it's more of a reference book of, let's see if it has something to say, but then let's kind of do whatever we want. Now, this is popular. This is a popular approach. I wouldn't say it that way, but it's a popular approach. That when you take the Bible and say, yeah, it's nice, but I think I know what would be best to get people in the door. I think that if we do this or do that, it's not really talked about in the Bible, but if we put on a good show, if we appeal to the masses, then, then people will come to church and be changed in some way. And ultimately, I think what you end up doing is, is you run into that air of you're simply inviting people into your best version on Sunday morning what the world already offers Monday through Saturday. Is you're simply trying to just give a, a churchy experience of what they already have in the rest of the world. Now, let me be clear on something. Every church should strive for excellence. Every church should strive to be clear in their communication, right? Even if I use, you know, words that we found in the Bible that are not uh, typical in our repertoire or our language, we should explain those, right? We should be clear. You know, sometimes churches uh, do that very, very well because they know that they have people coming inside the church that don't know Christ, would not consider themselves Christians, maybe consider themselves seekers. And that's a good thing. A church should want those people to come through the doors, but what are you giving them when they actually come in? If you're just giving them a version of what they already have in the world, I think we're missing the opportunity in which God has placed upon the church. And, and, here's, and here's maybe just a, a very practical way of, of, of unpacking the, the logic behind it is sometimes a church can go way beyond the bounds of trying to take out everything in which a church does that seems awkward in order to appeal to those that have never been inside the church before. And what you do is you take out all the elements that make a church a church. Such as maybe praying, maybe preaching the Bible, which we have to do those things because God has told us to do those things. And I'm not against trying to make people, like removing hurdles of awkwardness but here is what I, I pray, and, he, and hear me clearly on this. I want everybody to come into here that maybe doesn't know Christ or is not a Christian to feel a little bit awkward when they come in here because this place and what we do 
should feel different than the rest of the world. It should. That doesn't mean that we, we intentionally try to be awkward, but we hold fast to the things which God has given his people to do without apology, without watering it down. You know, when I first started going to church, especially when I became a Christian even, when I was 19 years old, I felt so awkward singing with a bunch of strangers. I don't know about you guys. I don't do that anywhere else besides Sunday morning. I don't meet up with people and sing with them. And so even as a Christian, I felt awkward doing that. It it, it didn't feel natural to me. And it took me, honestly, a long time for it to feel a little bit okay with it from a fleshly standpoint. But here's what I was convinced of from a conviction standpoint is that I wanted to be a Christian. And I wanted to follow Jesus with all of my heart, with all of my being, with all of my mind, all of my soul, all of my strength. And God's word has told me to sing with his people. So even though that I felt the awkwardness of that, I was committed to doing that because I know that God is smarter than me. He's a better God than me. He knows me far better than I know myself. And so I was committed to doing the very things which he has revealed in his word. So one of the errors when it comes to the Bible is simply using it as a reference book. Now, there's another side of that ditch that we also have to be aware of, and that is the side is that the Bible could then become your God. And you start worshiping the Bible rather than worshiping the God of the Bible. See the difference there? Because what can happen is you love the Bible so much, but you love it more and you want to just study it. You want to learn it and memorize it. And all those things can be good. But when you start having the goal of the Christian life to simply be Bible knowledge and not heart transformation, what could happen? You can become a bully. You can become mean, aggressive in the way that you talk to people that maybe haven't had the chance or the opportunity to study as much as you have. And usually there's a wake of destruction behind that, of people who feel they're beat up by the church because they didn't know as much as somebody else. And that's not the goal. It's not the goal. Even though we we love Bible knowledge, the goal is not to know the Bible. The the goal is to know the God of the Bible. Listen to this from, from Jesus. Let's take it from him. It's John 17, 17. It should be on the screen. He's talking to his disciples And he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So he's having this conversation with the disciples. And he actually starts, um, then he goes into what's known as a high priestly prayer. He starts praying and letting the disciples listen in on this. And he's telling God the Father, he's saying, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So what's the point of the Bible? It's to grow in your knowledge of who God is. It's to grow in a way that it actually changes you. That's what sanctification is. It's a fancy word which means growing to be more and more like Jesus. To grow in your convictions of you want to believe what God has revealed about himself. You want to do what God has commanded you to do. That's the process called sanctification. Now you do those things because you have been saved by God already. It's not to, in order for God to be happy with you, then save you. It's out of response that God has already gotten up on the cross and died for you. And what Jesus is saying is, Lord, use your word to sanctify them. Use your word 
to allow them to grow in their knowledge of you that will impact the way that they live and believe. Because you can, I've, and I've seen this, and I've seen this, and it, and, it, and it hurts my heart every time I see it. When you, you have people that deeply love the Bible, but do not love the God of the Bible, or deeply love the Bible, but there's no evidence that the Bible is actually changing them at all. It grieves me. It grieves me. Because you can easily be tricked into thinking that you are growing as a Christian because you, have, you know more doctrine. Doctrine is good, but if it's not leading to godliness, we're missing it. We're missing it. So that's error number two. So as a church, what do we do? What do we do? Well, I think we have to be driven by the Word of God, but we have to do it in a way that we're not falling to either one of those ditches. We have to constantly be evaluating, okay, where are we, where's our tendency to go? Now, I will say that as a church that has a high view of the scriptures, it's probably error number two that we could slip into, that we could be so passionate about studying the Bible that we miss the God of the Bible. I think that's one of the errors that we could fall into, but error number one is just as, as possible. But as a church, the call is to hold fast to the Word of God, to be driven by the Bible. So the Bible is going to be, every single time you guys walk in here on Sunday, it's going to be preached, it's going to be sung, it's going to be read, it's going to be prayed. We are going to anchor ourselves into the Word of God. But it's not just Sunday, is it? If a church is going to be driven by the Word of God, then the church has to be driven by the Word of God. Here's what I mean. The building, this is, the building is not the church, right? The people, right? This was a school once, right? When it was a school, it was not a church because the people inside of here were not, were not wanting, right, or striving to be the church. Even though it has, you know, architectural design of a church, what makes this building a church is when the people are inside of it, committed to, to God and His Word, And so for us as a church, if we're going to be driven by the Word of God, it means that every single individual who calls this place home must be driven by the Word of God as its ultimate authority. So here's some examples of how that's going to look. When tragedy comes, when suffering comes, when things do not go according to your plan, when someone dies, when someone gets diagnosed, when someone's hurt, when someone's betrayed, What are we to do? We are to hold fast to the word of God and let it comfort us. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion of the day of Jesus Christ. Or when our culture, which is constantly, I think, becoming more and more aggressive and uh, defiant in, in an enemy to the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Bible, to what human flourishing is, when the culture continues to stand against the word of God, what are we to do? We are to hold fast to the word of God no matter the consequences. Right. That's right, Hazel. You keep, you keep going at that. I get it. When we as a church want to grow in our faith, want to grow in our obedience, 
And we do that by God revealing and identifying ways in which we are sinning against him or not trusting him with all that we are. What is a Christian supposed to do? To let the word of God convict and encourage us to turn to him and trust him. And let the word of God lead us to repentance. Let the word of God lead us to a time where we remember his grace. Remember what he has done for us. The church is founded and driven by the word of God. It is. And just so in case you forgot, what's the ultimate story of the Bible, church? What's the ultimate story of the Bible? It's a story about God. That he has created all things. And even in his creation, even though it was good, even though it was perfect, we sinned. Our first parents and every single one of us thereafter, we have sinned. We have rebelled against God. But God was not done with us. He did not say, well, that was a mistake. I'll move on and try again. But God decided to do something and he did that through the person and work of Jesus. Right? When Jesus became human and he lived among us. But he didn't just live among us. He actually lived the perfect life. The life in which the Bible reveals that he wants all of us to live, that none of us can do it. Jesus did it. He was perfect in every way, every thought, every deed. And what did Jesus do with that perfect life? He went to the cross with it. Because sinners needed to be, have their sins paid for. But Jesus wanted to be our substitute. So he took his perfect life, life and he substituted himself by going to the, on the cross because God was rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us. Even when we are dead in our trespasses, he has made us alive together in Christ. Church, the story of the Bible is that God has come, that God has loved us, that God has saved us, and that God has revealed us. And what does that mean? It means that we respond to him. We live under him because we have everything that we could ever want or desire in Christ. You see, by Jesus going to the cross and dying for our sins, we now have the opportunity to now live unto him. We now have the opportunity and the ability to know him, to know him. That is good news, church. And what I want to do today is simply end with a a quick parable from Jesus where he tells the story of two men, two men that have died, one named Lazarus, when he died, he went to be with Jesus in heaven, which only comes through by believing and trusting in the person and work of Christ. And we also have another man who we don't know his name, but he is called or referred to as the rich man. And this is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, starting in verse 19. You can turn there if you want, but it will be on the screen as well. And let me just read this to you really quick because I think this is a way for you is to, for us to understand why the Word of God is so important. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. 
But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. In Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Verse 27. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into the place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You see the importance of the word of God there, church? So you have these two men, right? This parable of two men. One died, one goes to heaven, one goes to hell. And with the parable, they're able to basically see and communicate with one another. And this rich man who's in hell is looking up to heaven and saying, can you, can you help me at all? And from heaven comes the answer, no. No. You will have the full penalty for your life here on earth. Here on earth. Well, he says then, maybe, you, maybe there's something else you can do for me then. Can you go warn my brothers? I do not want them to have the same fate as I have. Please, Lazarus, if you go from heaven and go talk to them, I'm sure they will believe it. And what is Abraham's response in verse 29 of that parable? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. He has the Old Testament. He has the word of God. And what Jesus is getting at in this parable is what Paul talked about in 2 Timothy, that the word of God can make you wise for salvation. It can reveal who God is. It can reveal what he has done for you. It can reveal what your response to him should look like. And how dare we then? How dare we, if somebody comes into the doors of this building, not give them that? How dare we not open up the Bible and say, look at Moses and the prophets. Look at what Jesus has done. Look at what has been accomplished on your behalf. We have to do that. We have to do that. See, God has given us the greatest tool that we could have as a church, and that is the words of himself, the words that reveal who he is, the words that reveal how we are to respond to him. There is nothing better than that. I'm not, I'm not smart enough to make this thing up. I'm not smart enough to draw anybody in here based off my own intellect or my own creativity, but I will tell you what God has said. And it's the best thing that I can do. And that's what every leader believes here at Carson Valley Bible Church is that we are driven by the word of God because there is nothing better to be driven by. What a gift we have knowing this. And so if you don't know Christ, if you would say that you're not a Christian, the Bible tells us how to become one. And that is to trust and turn and believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that every single Sunday. But I want you to know where that comes from. And that comes from what the totality of this book talks about and presents. Even furthermore, that we believe that God has not just revealed what salvation looks like, but also what human flourishing looks like. Of how we can live unto him 
We can trust. It doesn't mean that everything's going to go right in this world. It doesn't mean there's not going to be suffering. There's not going to be sickness. There's not going to be times of trial. But it means that we can have the promises of what does God say about when we go through those things. We have that in the Bible. So church, in order for us to be driven by the word of God, it's not just me. It's every single one of us that comes in here anticipating that the word of God drives all that we say and all that what we do and what a gift that is. Well, let's pray.